Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. On August 8, a U.S. court handed Chevron Texaco a victory that lets it hide billions in assets in the U.S. that it owes to indigenous peoples in Ecuador, who have been ruined by the corporation's intentional polluting of their ecosystem. With this new ruling, the U.S. declared it is now a safe haven for Chevron's billions. It's the latest win for Chevron as it uses various schemes to reinforce its refusal to honor the lawsuit it lost in 2011 when it was found liable for nearly $9 billion in damages to the planet and people. I went to the Amazon to see for myself what was behind this unprecedented battle, where one of the richest corporations in the world has been fighting for decades to avoid returning a fraction of the profits to the land they were recklessly extracted from. What I found was a story that's largely hidden, but constitutes one of the biggest environmental disasters in the world with even bigger implications in regards to corporate impunity for crimes against humanity and nature in an era of growing, unchecked corporate power. The environmental significance of the Ecuadorian Amazon cannot be overstated. It has such mind-blowing biodiversity that more species exist in the Amazon basin than anywhere else on Earth. It's home to tens of thousands of species of insects, plants, and trees, with double the amount of distinct species of birds than in all of North America. While in the rainforest, I was mesmerized by the constantly changing array of remarkable flying and crawling creatures. The region is also rich in cultural diversity. It's home to thousands of indigenous peoples who have fished, bathed, and drank from its waterways, living in harmony with the environment for many thousands of years. But after just 30 years of Texaco's presence, that peace between humans and nature was radically altered. The Texaco Corporation, today merged with Chevron into the energy giant Chevron Texaco, sunk its teeth into this rich habitat back in 1964, when it was invited by a pro-US business military dictatorship, the same year the regime suspended Ecuador's elections. During its drilling there, until it left in 1992, Texaco dumped a shocking 17 million gallons of crude oil into the open, festering pits in the rainforest. But the pollution went much further. A catastrophic 19 million gallons of contaminated, oil-filled wastewater was dumped into the same habitat. But none of this was an accident. Texaco intentionally poured this oil into the Amazon by using cheap, profit-maximizing techniques so destructive that they were banned in Texaco's home country of the United States. At one point, Chevron was deliberately pumping an estimated 4 million gallons of toxic waste every day into the soil. Over 5 million acres of once pristine jungle were polluted, devastating an untold amount of living things and potential for new life. To compare Chevron Texaco's damage to the next biggest oil spills that have rocked the planet, the Exxon Valdez spill was far less, with 11 million gallons of crude oil spilled including the oil waste, Texaco is responsible for dumping 1,700 times more toxic fluid. The scale is comparable to the BP disaster, the biggest accidental oil spill in history. While BP spilled around 132 million gallons of oil and toxins, Chevron dumped over 140 times that in liquid waste and oil. But even that calamity was an unintended consequence of cost-cutting measures. 
whereas Texaco's dumping in the Amazon was a conscious decision, implemented for decades. When Texaco first set up shop, they saw the payoff of investing in a country where corporations were given free reign. Exempt from normal industry standards that minimize pollution, Texaco's wealthy shareholders saved an estimated $1 million per well. They went on to build hundreds of these wells in their feeding frenzy. Everywhere Texaco decided to extract oil, it built a platformed well. Each of these wells was surrounded by oil pits where excess oil was disposed of, so much so that they sometimes reached 34 feet deep into the earth. Each platform had at least three, but sometimes up to eight, of these poisonous pits. All in all, Texaco built a total of 344 of these oil wells, adorned with 1,200 stinking pools of crude oil waste left to rot this rich environment. When Texaco decided to cash out and vacate the operation in 1992, it tried to cover up its environmental crimes to avoid future liability. Many of the pits were simply covered in dirt to shroud the poison bubbling underneath. Local residents also attest to Chevron employees burying the evidence in wells. The pools that were too difficult to cover, Texaco lit them ablaze in a hapless attempt to incinerate decades of pollution. I toured one former Texaco site with Paula Carrera Ubidia, a biologist who's worked extensively in the affected area. She showed me the damage that Chevron tried to hide. Certain species um, of plants, of native plants in the Amazon, are capable of growing in such toxic conditions. Some of them are very adaptive and somehow make it um, within this very toxic environment. This is one of the, uh, from the Eurasian family. And we have, uh, in previous times, we have seen how in some of them it's even possible to see part of the oil, part of the crude, um, coming up uh, all together with, uh, with the latex. We just broke this and on the bottom it looks fresh, right? And then you break it in the middle and you can see just tons of crude that are just saturated in the stem here. And that's pretty much how all these plants are. Just the fact that they have all this carbon and hydrogen together um, make it extremely toxic for, for life in general. If you touch it, your skin has the ability to absorb part of it. And at the same time, they have uh, other types of chemical molecules associated, which are very, very um, which evaporate very easily. So what usually happens in places like this are two phenomena. One of them is that the rain uh, mixes with everything and it starts separating and chemical, uh, chemical reactions are produced. Mm -hmm. And so you start getting this oily right. film mm -hmm. on top of the water. Mm -hmm. And part of it has all these TPH, which are the volatile molecules that would come out and be liberated to the air when the temperature arises. In 1993, when the first lawsuit was leveled against Texaco by the affected communities for their disaster, the company entered into an underhanded deal with the sitting government to embark in a remediation cleanup process, attempting to exempt themselves from liability in the civil case. This great atonement by Texaco didn't even scratch the surface of the damage. Of the estimated 1,200 disaster sites, Texaco dictated conditions that only required them to remediate 264. Of that number, Texaco used a legal loophole to declare over 80 sites as requiring, quote, no action. Of the remaining 180 or so pits they claimed to have tended to, their cleanup methods were a sham, 
So this is one of the pools that Chevron called remediated. As you can see, it is full of crude that has been surfacing over the past couple of years. Uh, this is the smallest of three pools. A giant landfill actually covered a lot of the pool uh, with dirt um, and vegetation. But you can clearly see right here what's underneath the surface. And when you pull up some of these, you know, it looks like the vegetation is growing healthy, but when you pull it up and break it apart, you can see that obviously crude is still growing in the stalks of these plants. It's as if it was brand new, you know? It's hard to believe that this has been here for so long and it's still this fresh looking. But it gets worse. Many pits where Texaco dumped waste were built strategically by natural waterways so that the pipes could drain the overflow oil directly into the ponds and rivers below. And it's very easy to show it. Um, if we go to the end of this, of this pipe, of this tube, uh, which goes directly to the swamp below, right? It's very easy to see how all the water that has come out of this directly, right? Has uh, contaminated um, a huge part, if not pretty much all of the swamp that is an open, uh, that is an open door to the rest of the ecosystem around it, right? So this is one of the pipes that Chevron built to maintain the level of the pool, kind of maintain the illusion that the pools were under control when in reality, these were pushing out all of the overflow just right into all the rivers and swamps below. Because of the corporate giant's secrecy and shadiness, the Ecuadorian government still cannot find around 300 pits known to be festering like a cancer somewhere in the lungs of the world. Chevron Texaco denies these hidden pits exist, but I saw for myself that they are tragically very real. So this pool full of toxic crude oil actually wasn't even claimed by Chevron as part of the remediation process. They left it as is, and then they just absolved themselves, wiped their hands and said, this is Ecuador's responsibility. We don't even recognize this as part of our own operation. But really all it takes is standing here to see this is real. You can't fabricate something like this. So this is what happens when you put your hand in the ground about three inches. Um, it's just a disgusting, corrosive, sticky, crude mess. And that's what's covering this whole pool. It's just glob globules of crude right here, everywhere. Just giant balls of oil. It smells disgusting. It smells like you just poured gasoline all over your body. While each oil pit takes up hundreds of square feet, its actual reach is much wider, infecting all flora and fauna that try to live in its proximity. This is what's left after a process of decomposition of the crude, right? Um, they stay as, as little balls over there, which have separated from the heavy metals, mm -hmm. which mix with the water and stay below, right? And what you see on the surface, pretty much, is, is the rest of the, the, the oily part of the crude that permanently stays on the, on the surface layer until it gets removed and taken away by the animals. As the oil choked the life out of the rainforest, it did the same to entire human societies living within it. Medicine, <laughs> you
The Kofan people, one of the only communities in the Amazon that still practices a traditional lifestyle, is in danger of being eliminated as their family members die off. They and several other indigenous groups have had their cultures irreversibly altered by the incursion of big business. Like a rare species of flower going extinct, these cultures are forever lost, itself an unspeakable affront to humanity. Along with the thousands of native peoples impacted, tens of thousands more migrants brought by Texaco's development were sentenced to a similar fate. Rates of certain cancer are found to be 10 times higher near the oil fields than that of the Amazon basin as a whole. At least 1,400 people are proven to have died already from cancer of Texaco's pollution. But the true number is likely much higher due to lack of adequate data. Thousands more still live with an array of ailments. Children under the age of 10 are most at risk, experiencing higher rates of birth defects, leukemia, and learning disabilities. Chevron did not respond to our request for an interview on the matter, but the company continues to deny any link between this health crisis and their millions of gallons of crude oil. But while in the Amazon, I heard the raw truth from the victims themselves. Desde que emigrado para acá esta provincia desde Bolívar donde no hay contaminación de petróleo. I migrated here to this province, from Bolivar province, where there is no oil pollution. I've realized that since I've migrated here in 84 or 86, and people populated the area up to Lago Agrio, in Coca, Chuchu Fundi, and the view about oil was that it was sprinkled on the streets, highways, roads, everything was oil. You would get here and your shoes would get stuck. When the sun shone, it would heat up. When the rain came, it would become soapy. It generated bad smells. It was distressing for us. Our clothes would stain. But we all thought it was normal. We came here to look for a better future. We are from the Loja province. There was a lot of land. It was paradise here. No one understood what contamination meant. And as the years went by, we began to be told that the oil attracted contamination. There weren't a lot of us initially, but as the children began to be born, they had skin rashes and sores, white spots. I remember once in this oil well, there was a spill. It went down to the stream. But the thing is that it looked like an oil ocean. Not a single fish was left. Time passed and then bad times came for us, the diseases in our families. The main cause of death here is cancer, stomach cancer. My mother died of cancer. When I drank, cooked, bathed with polluted water that came from the rivers, I contracted a disease that I've had for more than 20 years that affects all of my body. A result of this terrible pollution that Chevron, Texaco left behind. Later, I worked on the banks of the Napo River where the water is polluted. I was transferred due to health reasons from there, but I've come across even more oil here. There are even open pits. About 300 meters from where I live, the town is there, and right beside it there was an open pit that was found just like the other ones here. To this day, a few years ago, it was covered, but it wasn't treated. Describe the effects of the pollution on your body. I have spots on my skin, all over my body. How long have you had this? More than 20 years. 20 years? Yes. Carmen Perez is the leader of a group that's been fighting for compensation from Chevron. 
I was a nurse for 20 years, and I can recognize the illnesses that people have had. I've been in the United States in a meeting in which the president of Chevron said that he left behind drinking water for everyone, that he left behind a health center for everyone. But that is a lie, because we don't have those things. You can see the water that runs in the streams. That is the water we drink. We live with that water, and many diseases come with it. Here in the Amazon, this is the lungs of the planet. We have clean air, thank God. Sometimes it is polluted, but we have air. Rosa Moreno, a nurse who lived and worked in one of the most impacted areas for over 31 years and provided care to countless casualties of the pollution, was recently diagnosed with cancer herself. I stopped working six months ago due to my own health reasons. But the situation where I live, in the parish, is truly one of the places most polluted by Chevron. It's a very alarming case. Our parish is one of the most polluted places. But nothing has really been done to remediate all of that, the pollution that has caused hundreds of people to die of cancer. Unfortunately, that disease befell me. It is really hard for those who have had the bad luck of having this illness. It has done away with almost all the resources that my family has had because of my health. It's very sad because my family has already lost four loved ones to cancer. We don't have a way out or any other place to go where we could have a more dignified life without pollution. The rivers that cross the parish are very polluted. The studies that were performed by the Amazon Defense Front concluded that the water wasn't suitable even for animals, much less humans. I've seen many cases. I've seen my father-in-laws, my father's, my husband's aunt, a niece of my husband's. For her, the leukemia did not even last eight days. She fainted on the street and was taken to Quito, and she died three days later. Nothing was able to be done for her. When you got your diagnosis, what was it, and how did you feel? This is hard. It's very hard. It's okay if you don't want to talk about it. I believe in God. That's why I'm still here. Sometimes with this disease, you don't know what will happen, because one day is good and the next day is bad. It was very hard for me to accept, but I have spirit and courage to continue here and to tell other people who have this illness that we can't let ourselves be defeated. We have to be optimistic. These stories show why so many people living here, along with supporters around the world, have been tirelessly fighting for justice. The president of Chevron, Texaco, is incapable of saying, okay, fine, and recognizing that so many people have died. So many women have had their uteruses removed because of these illnesses and the polluted water that we have here. We have suffered for so many years. It's been 22 years that we've been fighting this battle. We asked Chevron's president to leave his pride aside with all his money and to return. We are not asking for charity. We are asking for him to return what was stolen from us in Ecuador. Well, for a multinational corporation that prioritizes the economic factor, but not the social aspects or our natural aspects, such as the animals' fauna, well, they're only about the money. What is justice for you? 
Justicia es vivir en armonía con la naturaleza. Justice is living in harmony with nature, with people, and with everything that surrounds us. Justice is an equal distribution of wealth, health, and all basic services in being able to live in harmony. That is justice and equity. The truth, you can see it, touch it, it's right here. We just dug and saw it. I've been covered in oil and that's maddening, unbearable pain. And we continue proving this, you can see it. Hopefully you're able to do something for our society, the people that live here. And let's remember that this isn't just wealth. It is also death, desperation and desolation. This is the true legacy of Chevron Texaco in Ecuador, largely buried by its huge arsenal of dirty tricks, mercenaries, puppets, and collaborators in courtrooms around the world. Cleaning up this mess and compensating the victims would mean setting a precedent for corporate accountability in a world of unchecked corporate power. And when we dug deeper into their handling of the case, we found what lengths this energy titan would go to prevent a people's victory. In 1993, just one year after Texaco left the Amazon, 30,000 indigenous villagers filed a class action lawsuit for the destruction the company left behind. It became the biggest environmental case in history. On one side, one of the wealthiest corporations in the world. On the other, some of the poorest people with a small team of dedicated lawyers. The lead attorney in that team is Pablo Fajardo, a native of the Cofan people the community most impacted by the oil disaster, who worked in the oil fields himself while working on his law degree. He's been recognized internationally for his tireless, selfless work for this cause. I met him in his office in Quito, Ecuador, where he works surrounded by hundreds of binders of case documents. I asked him what it is about this case that has made him dedicate over 20 years of his life to fighting Chevron and their attacks. El sueño de justicia. Hay un sueño por lograr justicia. The dream of justice. There is a dream of obtaining justice, which means a lot. But there is also a dream of showing the world that the poor, indigenous, campesinos, humble, excluded, mistreated, and forgotten people of the world, when united, they are capable of achieving things that are seemingly impossible. In our case, 30,000 indigenous and campesinos organized in the union of people affected by Texaco, they have fought for 22 years and seven months, and they continue here. So the persistence, that dream of justice, and the desire to have this company pay for their crimes is what keeps us going. Many things have happened, many problems, threats, persecutions. The company has used enormous pressure against us, but we can't give up. We can't leave this battle halfway through. We have to make it to the end and make Chevron pay for the crime committed in our country and on our planet. Of course, the damage isn't just environmental. One thing that should be understood is that the damage is holistic. It is environmental, social, cultural damage, economic, religious. The damage is to the integrity of the people and the ecosystem. For example, Texaco intentionally spilled 60 billion liters of toxic wastewater into the Amazon rivers built more than 1,500 kilometers of roads in the rainforest and covered all of them with crude oil and spilled thousands of barrels of oil directly into the Ecuadorian Amazon. And it needs to be understood that environmental damage is not accidental. 
Let's recall the Exxon Valdez disaster in Alaska, for example, or BP in the Gulf of Mexico, or another in Europe. All of those were accidents. The Chevron case was not an accident. It was a systematic operation designed by the company to increase their profits by decreasing their investment. What about health? Because Chevron Texaco says that health has not been affected. Additionally, aside from the environmental damage, there is social damage. For example, indigenous peoples. There are two indigenous cultures that disappeared completely in the first five years of Texaco's oil drilling in Ecuador. There are incredible health effects. For example, several studies demonstrate how the rate of cancer, leukemia in children and miscarriages are up to 10 times more than the rest of the country. Chevron uses many mercenaries, a lot of experts and techniques from around the world to convince the world that oil doesn't cause any health issues. And they are obviously people, experts who answer to those who pay them. It is like many universities. Universities, academia, investigate what is convenient to whoever is financing the investigation. A good portion of people who have cancer and leukemia do not show in statistics because they don't go to the public hospital or a doctor. Many die in silence. But the data we do have, which isn't all of it, does show a very high amount of cancer cases. There is a study, for example, in a book called Las Palabras de la Selva, by a Spanish doctor called Carlos Bernstein. In that study, it is demonstrated how the families that live closer to the oil pits have higher cancer rates. The further away you get from the oil extraction pits, the lower the rates are. That demonstrates the causal link between those toxins and the health of the population. Today I was participating in a diagnosis of the health of those who live in the area. We are coming across results that are alarming, extremely worrying, very high rates of cancer, incomparable to any statistic that exists in the country. I always say that our hands are so clean. They are not stained with blood like Chevron's hands. The big wars in the world, the war in Iraq and Kuwait, had to do with oil. And Chevron is always behind those wars, for the oil all over the world. Their hands are stained with oil and the blood of many people. Ours, thank God, are not. Chevron Texaco's actions in Ecuador are just one chapter in a sinister history. Texaco was part of the birth of the modern U.S. oil industry, with the discovery of oil in Texas in 1901. The reserves discovered there were so vast, a single well's daily production was higher than all other wells in the U.S. combined. Gulf Oil, Amoco, Exxon, and others, in addition to Texaco, were also born in this Texas oil boom, which propelled them to become the world's richest corporations today. Throughout the early 20th century, the marauding of oil monopolies were known to act more like criminal cartels than companies, ruthlessly snuffing out any competition. Its executives were cutthroat too. Texaco's founder was known for flying a skull and crossbones flag atop of his office building as a symbol and warning of their ruthlessness. But his hand-picked successor, Torklid Reber, was no less aggressive as an open Nazi and admirer of fascists. In the 1930s, Texaco became the first U.S. oil company to back Francisco Franco's fascism during the Spanish Civil War, violating U.S. law by secretly selling him oil. In turn, it fueled the deaths of over 500,000 people and the torture of countless others. Texaco also made deals with Italy's fascist Benito Mussolini and even Hitler's Germany 
giving critical support to the functioning of the Nazi genocide and expansion. But beyond that, even hired Nazi assistants, who provided intelligence to Hitler's army about U.S. cargo ships leaving for Britain. This affection for fascists was also part of their entrance into Ecuador and Colombia. Texaco was part of a mad rush by big oil to reap super profits in Latin America, wherever corrupt pro-corporate juntas and dictators opened their doors. Scoring the oil fields from Ecuador's pro-U.S. business dictatorship in 1964, Texaco took advantage of a volatile, undemocratic state. Texaco promised to use the most up-to-date drilling technology, but they didn't even use their own patented technology already standard in the U.S., and instead employed cheap, banned methods. Today's devastation in the Amazon is largely intentional pollution from these profit-maximizing tactics. For example, Chevron sabía, tenía... For example, Chevron knew the company had more adequate technology. They knew that they should have injected the toxic wastewater underground into the subsoil. There is a very important book from 1962 by the American Petroleum Institute, API, which very clearly stated how the wastewater should be treated and injected underground to avoid contaminating the environment. That chapter of the book was written by Texaco technicians. So Texaco knew what it had to do to avoid affecting the environment. But they never applied what they preached and practiced in most of the states to Ecuador. Why? For two reasons. One, for illegal profits, that is to increase profits by decreasing investment. And the second reason, because of racism. Chevron considers the indigenous people of Ecuador and Latin America to be worth a lot less than any North American. For example, the company's racism led to these perverse crimes. Gobbling up this treasure trove in the jungle, Texaco would grow to become the third largest oil company in the world. But decades later, found itself falling behind its competitors and embarrassed by public scandals, like the leaked secret recordings of senior Texaco executives calling minority employees racist terms like black jelly beans while discussing a racial discrimination lawsuit. In 2001, Chevron absorbed Texaco and its executives, creating the second largest oil company in the U.S. and one of the most powerful on Earth. Chevron's annual profits are higher than Ecuador's entire GDP, with total assets reaching $266 billion in 2015. Today, Chevron operates in at least 180 of the under 200 countries around the world, with oil, natural gas, and chemical production. When it fused with Texaco, Chevron also acquired its legacy of crimes. But like Texaco, Chevron had its own history of environmental destruction and human rights atrocities. Spawned from the breakup of John D. Rockefeller's standard oil monopoly, Chevron invested in vulnerable nations where sovereignty wasn't a barrier. Like Niger in Africa, where there's been a decades-long battle waged between the corporation and Nigerian people. In 1998, workers in the Niger Delta took over an offshore oil platform in protest of substandard working conditions and wages. Chevron then ordered the notoriously brutal Nigerian military to crush the demonstration and even armed them with helicopters to carry out the paramilitary assault. They opened fire on the activists, killing two protesters and wounding several more. In 2005, Chevron wanted to invest in drilling in Burma, today Myanmar, but was prevented by laws aimed at their dictatorship. But by purchasing Unical 76, which was already operating in the country, they could be grandfathered in. The merger occurred right after Unical settled a lawsuit accusing them of assisting the Burmese military in murder, torture, and rape of villagers. 
Disturbingly, Chevron carried on the same tactics. In 2008, human rights groups exposed that the Burmese troops paid by Chevron to guard and expand its oil pipelines shot villagers, ordered them into forced labor, and violently displaced entire villages. Chevron is also under fire for similar human rights violations in Kazakhstan and African countries of Chad, Cameroon, and Equatorial Guinea. The company's contempt for human health and the environment does not discriminate to its home country. In Richmond, California, a poor majority African-American community, Chevron pumped out harmful toxins from several major refineries that left tens of thousands stricken with respiratory disease, heart disease, and more. The catastrophe spurred the community into action, waging a grassroots fight against the oil giant. With billions of profits coming from the town, the corporation has invested tens of millions of dollars in the small California city in an attempt to buy the loyalty of local politicians, spending $3 million in campaign donations in 2014 alone. The oil beast also tried to control the community by creating the Richmond Standard, a PR website actually pretending to be a legitimate news source, brought to you by Chevron. Across the United States, Chevron has a long rap sheet when it comes to environmental crimes, constantly paying out settlements for deliberate pollution of ecosystems and communities. But when it came to the poor South American country of Ecuador, Chevron wouldn't submit its dollars so easily. When the lawsuit began, Texaco used a strategy of litigation in perpetuity to endlessly drag out the case they could hope to exhaust and bankrupt their opponents. Texaco first stalled the lawsuit by arguing that their home country of the U.S. was the, quote, improper venue. This succeeded in locking the case in litigation for eight long years until the U.S. sided with the corporation and threw it out in 2001. The affected residents refiled against the newly merged Chevron Texaco and Ecuadorian court, hoping to overwhelm their opposition with unlimited funds. The corporation deployed an astonishing 60 law firms for the case. They also invested millions in a massive disinformation campaign, using Chevron-paid scientists and fake news sites to try to control the message. For the next decade, Chevron again bogged down the trial in litigation and dirty tricks. Let's just think. Chevron spent more money on the so-called environmental remediation that they never did, $40 million. However, to defend themselves in this trial, they spent $2 billion. That is the reality. They have spent thousands of millions of dollars to defend themselves in this trial. So any sensible person says, why don't they just pay that? Why don't they pay and fix the problem once and for all? The problem is the judicial precedent. You need to understand that this case isn't just against Chevron Corporation. It is a case against the system of global corporate impunity. The corporations which govern the governments in many parts of the world impose the rules and see this case as a threat against the system of corporate impunity in the world. What are some of the lesser-known tactics that Chevron employed, spying, blackmail, extortion, to try to deter uh, this justice? Well, there are a lot of things, like what happened to us. We have had surveillance constantly in this office, persecutions. I've had a lot of confrontations with Chevron spies here that come to our office to attack, to provoke us. More recently, Chevron has initiated more than 30 lawsuits against us. I have civil, criminal lawsuits, all kinds. There is a sort of judicial terrorism on behalf of Chevron against us that is incredible. It's unbelievable. What Chevron wants is for us to focus on these smaller cases that they present us with all over the world and to disregard the main case. We say no. If we have to go to jail, 
we'll go gladly, but we'll never give up this dream of achieving justice. My email accounts are surveilled by Chevron, and they check them far more frequently than I do, for example. They do online espionage, physical espionage with people on the streets. There is also sort of a financial terrorism against us, so that we won't get financial support anywhere. All the people, NGOs, friends that finance the struggle of ours, have been judicially persecuted so that no one will support us. Perhaps most telling of Chevron's dirty tricks in the trial was one that destroys their entire defense, that they didn't leave any unremediated oil damage. The company had its paid experts explicitly conduct sampling in Ecuador, where they were confident that they would find no oil. And if they did, they simply hid the evidence. The scandal was revealed in leaked recordings and exposed Chevron's orders to those gathering evidence. Stay close. Well, we might as well stop them now. Stop them, stop them. Just, uh, yeah, we're, we're done here. That, that. We're trying to find a clean core and obviously didn't go out far enough. Nice job, Dave. One simple task. Who, who picked don't, the spot, Renee? Don't find Who picked the spot, Renee? <laughs> yeah, that's a mixture. That's got oil on it, too. I was hoping to try to get something clean. Well, that would make yours, Dave, because you kept finding oil in places where it shouldn't have been. Other whistleblowers have attested to Chevron's extra-legal tactics. One journalist says she was offered $20,000 to become a Chevron spy against the plaintiffs. Despite its massive efforts, Chevron was ultimately deemed guilty in 2011. The corporation appealed the case again and again, but the verdict was upheld by three layers of Ecuadorian courts, the final in Ecuador's Supreme Court. It was a historic victory, the first time indigenous groups successfully sued an oil company for destroying their lands and their health. Chevron got off relatively easy, ultimately ordered to pay only $9.6 billion in damages, a fraction of its annual revenue, and $10 billion less than what BP paid for its spill in the Gulf. But the world's biggest beasts do not submit easily. Chevron flexed its muscles a transnational corporation, bound by nothing, and simply refused to pay. It pulled all of its assets from Ecuador and stashed the cash in other countries where the affected Amazon villagers must open entirely new cases. And that's where the lawsuit stands today. The victims are pursuing their compensation hoarded by Chevron in Canada, Brazil, and Argentina. When the US court ruled in August 2016 that they couldn't pursue Chevron's assets in the United States, another door to justice was closed for the poison in the Amazon. Ironically, Chevron's main defense for not paying reparations and cleanup has been corruption by the victims their lawyers, and the entire Ecuadorian state. And Pablo, you, you actually won. You won this case. Um, what was your reaction when Chevron said that that was illegitimate? You can expect anything from Chevron. I would never expect a bottle of wine or flowers from them. We know that they would never do that. If I died, perhaps, just to be sure that I did. Evidently, we knew that they would do something like that and try to find ways to delegitimize Ecuadorian justice and to attack the Ecuadorian state. Because remember, our case began in the United States. Chevron wanted to be tried in Ecuador, but we knew that Chevron was going to do anything possible to destroy Ecuador's image. 
it's convenient for them. It's convenient to say that there is no justice here, that everything is corrupt and rotten to try to make the sentence seem invalid. But we know our opponent, and we know what it is capable of doing in the world to corrupt people, corrupt governments, states, judges, experts, scientists. In addition to refusing to pay, Chevron also went into attack mode, retaliating with suits against both the lawyers of the victims and the Ecuadorian state. In targeting the indigenous victims and their attorneys, they evoked a racketeering lawsuit, normally used against organized crime syndicates, arguing that Chevron was in fact the victim and that the whole trial was some sort of scam. Chevron sought an unfathomable $60 billion in damages, more than six times what it owed to the Amazon. Ironically, Chevron tried to prove its charge of corruption by using genuine corruption. Chevron's star witness, Ecuadorian Judge Alberto Guerra, was actually being illegally paid an exorbitant amount by Chevron and offered a new life in the US. In exchange, he agreed to give the false testimony that Chevron had coached him on for three months leading up to the trial. Yet Chevron had another trick up its sleeve. The judge, Lewis Kaplan, had a special relationship with the oil giant. A fact he never disclosed was that he was actually an investor in Chevron. While allowing Chevron to present secret witnesses, Kaplan barred the defense from presenting any evidence of the company's pollution in Ecuador. Chevron's final legal swindle was a last-minute surprise, where they dropped their demand for the $60 billion in damages. That meant that their man Kaplan alone would decide the verdict, rather than a jury. Of course, Kaplan dutifully served as fellow shareholders and ruled in favor of Chevron. I cannot tolerate, under any concept, that human lives are sacrificed for profit. We know ethics is limited by money. We know that their pension funds are threatened. That's as far as ethics goes. But that needs to be corrected. Those types of things cannot continue. I call on Chevron shareholders, pension funds, workers, universities, retirees, and capitalists. I am not asking for any sort of present. I am asking them to be just and to respect the earth, indigenous peoples, state sovereignty, and justice. I always say there is no fugitive from justice who will be forever a fugitive. At some point, that fugitive must pay for his crime. And in this case, Chevron is a fugitive from justice and must pay. We will not rest, and everyone should understand that their money, their investment is at risk. If their corporation, their director, John Watson, the director, makes the right decisions and respects Ecuadorian law, respects sovereignty and the sentence, this ends immediately and all of us win. But I insist that shareholders cannot allow them to continue committing crimes like this in Ecuador to be able to increase their profit. The people of the United States need to know the Chevron case is important, that wherever Chevron is, there are crimes against humanity, against indigenous peoples and against the land. And it is one of the companies that caused the most destruction against the planet. And the people of the United States cannot continue being accomplices to this corporation. When Chevron first went into the Amazon, they didn't have to worry about the sitting government questioning their criminal actions. But in 2007, the old order of a subservient state was turned upside down, a situation that Chevron and the U.S. Empire would not easily accept. In 2007, in the midst of Chevron fighting the indigenous victims of their oil pollution, a new government came into power. 
It was one that openly declared Chevron's actions a crime against people and nature, blasphemy to the reign of corporate rule. Chevron declared this government corrupt and all of its court rulings against them illegitimate. While in Ecuador's capital of Quito, I asked their Minister of Foreign Affairs, Guillaume Long, about this charge. Minister Long is a French-born academic who became involved in Ecuadorian politics during their progressive upsurge. Chevron's response, of course, is that Ecuador is corrupt. Well, coming from the most, one of the most corrupt transnational corporations in the world, uh, we have a saying in, 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 in Spanish, el burro hablando de orejas, the donkey speaking of its own ears. Um, and it's very interesting that when Ecuador was a very weak state with quite a lot of corruption, and it insisted adamantly that all its issues within Ecuador should be solved in Ecuador. Why? Because it was easier to corrupt officials. And it played a very nefarious role in the old Ecuador and in corrupting uh, the judicial system in order to have its way. When this government comes to power, suddenly it senses that there are clear rules of the game, that there are regulations, that there's a state asserting itself. And it starts arguing for moving away from the Ecuadorian judicial system and taking it back to the United States, when in fact for decades it had argued the exact reverse, that everything should be sorted in Ecuador and nobody should poke their nose into the matter. You know, this is an Ecuadorian issue. But as soon as we came to power, um, the argument was the exact reverse. Chevron is hedging its billions on the argument that Ecuador's government is now corrupt and their crimes are absolved by deals with past governments they considered not corrupt. Of course, Chevron is assuming that the real history of the country will not be told. The land within Ecuador's borders today has over 8,000 years of history where indigenous groups cooperatively networked their sovereign tribes across the region. All of this changed in 1463 when the Inca Empire sought to conquer their land which was fiercely resisted by Ecuador's tribes for almost four decades until they were defeated. Rule by the Inca continued until the arrival of the Spanish Empire in 1531, which quickly and violently took control. The next 300 years would be scarred by the iron fist of Spanish colonial rule. But in the early 19th century, independence leaders Simón Bolívar and José de San Martín were leading mass armies to liberate South America from the ruthless shackles of the Spanish crown. Their movement emboldened the oppressed across the continent, including in Ecuador. Insurgent actions by Ecuadorian fighters drove out the Spanish troops. They declared independence in 1820, but politics continued to be dominated by rich elites. The rubber boom of 1879 ushered in decades of unprecedented horror for Ecuador and its neighbors, where rubber barons ravaged the Amazon for US, UK, and French companies. They used the brutal enslavement of indigenous Amazonians from Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia to steal the vast, highly profitable raw material. In some areas, a shocking 90% of Indian populations were wiped out. One anthropologist writes of this period, the horrendous atrocities that were unleashed on the Indian people of the Amazon during the height of the rubber boom were like nothing that had been seen since the first days of the Spanish conquest. During the so-called second rubber boom in the early 1940s, U.S. companies needed new migrant workers. So they created the Rubber Development Corporation, which bribed governments of the Amazon basin with $100 for every worker they shipped to mine rubber. Thousands were forced into indentured servitude as a result. Around 30,000 rubber workers died in the corporation's rush for profits. 
But outside the Amazon, a political struggle was being waged in Ecuadorian society. Still the monocrop economy they had been forced into by the Spanish, Ecuador became split into two centers of power. The wealthy landowners of the cocoa and banana fields and the big port and factory owners who got rich off exporting those products. The indigenous people, peasants, and working class in Ecuador were marginalized, while these two competing bourgeoisies duked it out for supremacy. There was major social inequality, and the political system was considered completely corrupt, so there were strikes all over the country. The biggest was a general strike in 1922 in the city of Guayaquil by workers protesting for fair wages from their employers. During a mass march nearing the end of the strike, the military started shooting randomly into the peaceful demonstration. Upper-class residents of the neighborhood also came out onto their balconies and joined the soldiers in shooting into the crowd. The slaughter is estimated to have killed around a thousand innocent people. Hundreds of bodies were thrown in the river. The massacre dealt a major blow to the workers' movement, sending leaders into jail and exile. Discontent over stark inequality caused the populism of Velasco Ibarra to gain prominence. As a shining example of how tumultuous Ecuadorian politics was over the years, Ibarra would win five presidential elections, but in four of those terms was deposed by a military coup. Another upsurge in Ecuadorian society came in 1944, when again, under another dictator, indigenous peoples, farm workers, students, and more rose up in protest all over the country. Insurrectionist soldiers arrested the repressive police forces and burned down their army barracks. Ibarra came to power again in this revolt. While his own dictatorial policies quickly earned the ire of those who brought him to power, he also made enemies with the U.S. empire for not being a total puppet for its interests. He was overthrown in 1961 in a U.S.-backed coup. The U.S. employed more than just regime change to control the country. According to CIA agent Philip Agee, almost every single political organization in the country was infiltrated, with over 200 senior officials in Ecuador's government working as CIA assets. Politicians would give CIA-written speeches, and newspapers would run CIA-written stories. Operatives even bombed churches and framed leftists to fuel anti-communist propaganda. Ibarra's successor, his vice president, Carlos Julio Arrozmana, was also overthrown in a CIA coup in 1963. A new U.S. puppet junta took power, suspended democratic elections, declared it illegal to be a communist, and started rounding up progressives. It is this puppet government that invited Texaco to do as it pleased in the Amazon, where it dug over a thousand oil pits in the pristine jungle. Well, there's a long history of Ecuador playing a subordinate role in the international system, um, going back to colonial and post-colonial times. Ecuador, for many decades, was played a very peripheral role in the international system through the production of raw materials, a plantation economy, uh, imported importing throughout the 20th century manufactured, manufactured goods from industrial powers and basically uh, inserting itself in the uh, international economy through bananas, then later on seafood, but before that 19th century cocoa, of course, so according, according different periods in history, uh, inserting itself with different products, but always raw materials. And then oil came along in the 1960s and 70s, and it was at the time seen as the Save, it would save the Ecuadorian economy, it would make Ecuador and Ecuadorians prosperous. But of course it was a new raw material and in fact uh, many mistakes were made, including um, letting 
all these transnational corporations coming without any rules, without any regulations, without any presence of the state, without any institutions or institutionality, uh, and reaping meager benefits from multinational companies that used to do pretty much what they wanted in a very corrupt context with very weak, a very weak state. A corrupt state and control by the U.S. fueled the movement for progressive change. In 1979, Jaime Roldos became president on a popular platform of opposing U.S. policy and doubling the minimum wage. The Roldos presidency coincided with a new assault by the U.S. empire on leftists across Latin America, known as Operation Condor, where U.S.-backed death squads along with state forces killed an estimated 60,000 people. The mysterious death of President Roldos in 1981 is believed to be one of Operation Condor's many, many political assassinations. Ecuador's entire modern history is one dominated by outside empires, aided by its own corrupt elites. The legacy of underdevelopment, coupled with the ravages of neoliberalism, set the country deeper into unrest. In the late 90s, Ecuador entered into its worst economic crisis ever. Millions fled the country to find jobs. 16 banks collapsed, and the currency became taken over by the U.S. dollar. It was under this major crisis the Ecuadorian government signed off on a remediation process that was nothing more than a quid pro quo between Texaco and elite officials in the country. In 1998, the highly unpopular neoliberal president, Jamil Mouhouad, gave Chevron the ultimate gift called the Act of Liberation. This document declared that no one private or public, could sue Texaco for the damage for all of its dirty operations, past, present, and future. I think 10, 15 years ago, Ecuador was too precarious. The Ecuadorian state was too uh, weak, I would say even too corrupt, uh, too elite-driven in order to be able to face, in a sovereign manner, this challenge, this challenge posed by, by Chevron. Uh, you know, we were completely permeated by uh, foreign domination. We even had a U.S. military base in, in, in Manta. All sorts of aspects of sovereignty. When you have strong men, or, you know, in, the, in, the, in academia, warlords, but in this case, they weren't, at, they weren't at war, but, you know, kind of caudillos in Latin American culture, mayors that are stronger than presidents. Let's not forget that in a decade prior to our government, we had seven presidents in 10 years. I mean, this really gives us, this is, illustrates really well the kind of institutional weakness, a kind of failed state. Uh, you know, we use the expression failed state in hyper-violent contexts. We think of certain countries, which I will not name now, but we think of, you know, civil war, mayhem. Yeah, but failed state can also be a state without institutions, you know, without huge rates of violence. We didn't have massive violence in Ecuador, but nothing worked properly. The state wasn't defending the interests of its citizens. Uh, you had uh, these kind of strong men running, you know, often plantation owners, we're going back to the plantation state, running the country, but from a very localized agenda with no real nation state uh, project. But after centuries of those who challenged the power of big capital being crushed, something finally changed. Leftist economist Rafael Correa was elected on a platform of rejecting the entire neoliberal order. The Correa government brought in a completely new constitution, which guaranteed rights for poor and working class people, and for the first time ever, for nature, an unthinkable concept in a world where capital overrides life. After centuries of being bled dry by empires and elites, the biggest change was an assertion of national sovereignty. Ecuador kicked out the U.S. military base in Manta, raised taxes on banks and the super-rich, and stood up to big oil, including Chevron Texaco. Entonces, Chevron, con todo su poder económico, 
So Chevron, with all its economic might, has delayed the trial. It's a corrupt company that corrupts others as well. There are many testimonies of people who Chevron attempted to pressure. One of the figures key to Chevron's argument that our judicial system is corrupt is himself a corrupt judge who is brought by Chevron, who lives in the United States and receives a generous monthly salary from Chevron. So with these types of schemes, they delayed the trial until our government came to power and we were the only government that Chevron couldn't buy. In past governments, Chevron had great influence, and that's why it claims we got involved in the trial. Quite the opposite. For the first time, there is autonomy of the judiciary. And because they had independence, they ruled in favor of those who were right, the indigenous people in the Amazon. Because you or any of your North American viewers or anyone can come here to the Ecuadorian Amazon and dip their own hands in the lagoons of oil left by Texaco more than 20 years ago. And their hands will come out full of oil. I think that clearly uh, Chevron wasn't expecting this kind of sovereign you know, uh, government to come in in 2007 and actually say, yeah, this is, this is, this is not right. Uh, Ecuadorian people have been victim of this uh, behavior of, of a multinational uh, without getting involved in the judicial proceedings at all, but saying it because there's a historic and a political responsibility on behalf of any ruler to say, yes, my people have been affected by this company. And so there's been a major attempt, uh, and also a legal, juridical, international strategy uh, to try and uh, imply that there's been meddling on behalf of the Ecuadorian government in judicial proceedings. In 2009, Chevron made its most drastic legal maneuver yet, brought Ecuador to the permanent court of arbitration at The Hague. Don't be confused by the name. The Hague was simply being used as a venue. The court itself was a body created to settle investment disputes for the World Bank. Ecuador was forced to face Chevron in this court under the authority of a bilateral investment treaty signed between the US and Ecuador. Arbitration mechanisms do not operate in the interest of the majorities, do not operate in the interest of law and, and uh, are not fair at the end, and uh, the case of Ecuador, I think, is very emblematic. Bilateral investment treaty is, is very important because it's a very strong tool, but it's incredible because uh, the bilateral investment treaty with the U.S. entered into force in 97, but, uh, you know, Chevron ended its operation in Ecuador in 92, and now they're applying the bilateral investment treaty uh, retroactively, <laughs> you know, to and they're using that as a protection uh, a mechanism to say, yes, uh, Ecuador is responsible. They did not uh, respect the bilateral investment treaty with the U.S. Impossible to respect a treaty that didn't exist in 92. <laughs> uh, UNCTAD, the, the U.N. Conference on Trade and Development, they did a study on the arbitration uh, mechanisms, and, and they have numbers that are shocking, you know, shocking in terms of saying that the, the same judges, because since there is not a court, a specific mm -hmm. court, it's a group of judges that are in charge of the arbitration mm -hmm. processes. It's the same group of 20 judges. Mm -hmm. They receive millions of dollars, and they, the whole system is corrupt. Yeah. You know, and this is being proven by the UN itself. But, right. you know, countries do not stand up and say, you know, we cannot accept that. Well, we cannot accept CIADI, we cannot ac accept right. the, uh, uh, the arbitration courts that are operating in that way. And they have a list of, I think, 20 judges 
that they, they, they are the same. It's a, it's a business that put, you know, in risk uh, the, the right to development of countries like Ecuador. All these treaties for bilateral protection of investment grant more rights to capital than human beings. If a citizen feels wronged by us and wanted to take us to an international court, they would have to exhaust all courts at a national level. With these treaties, a private business can take a sovereign national government to these arbitrations, where everything revolves around big capital because these arbiters are not professionals, but ad hoc, normally lawyers for these very same oil companies. The whole affair is shameless. Among many allegations at The Hague, Chevron declared that the Ecuadorian government should have prevented the lawsuit against Chevron in the first place, based on its sham remediation deal with President Mahuad. Chevron Texaco says that our company, Petro Ecuador, which took control of the area after they left, contaminated the area. You could ask the local people. Hundreds or even thousands of people will tell you that Texaco was the one operating in that area, and it was they who contaminated it. So finally, the judge ruled in favor of those who were right. But that's how economic power works. These people believe that they are above states, above justice. They created a series of legal incidents and started a nasty PR campaign against our government. They hired a PR company to say our government is corrupt and that we had a hand in the final verdict. They started a lawsuit against us at The Hague using these trade agreements for protection for investments, arguing that our state had already signed off, that the cleanup had taken place. Through corruption, some bad officials were paid off in 1998, signing off that everything was cleaned up and yet, to this day, you can see the real situation. Yet the World Bank's private tribunal ruled in favor of Chevron. It ordered the Ecuadorian government to stop all efforts in the country to collect the $9.5 billion judgment against the oil company and to prevent the plaintiffs from pursuing their cases in countries where Chevron is stashing its assets. In the end, the Ecuadorian state was forced to pay $112 million to Chevron by the small private World Bank court, which essentially gave itself the authority to override the decision of any court, of any sovereign nation. By contrast, there is no international court that wields the authority to make Chevron pay for human rights and environmental crimes. And this situation can soon be raised to a new level with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where the US, along with 11 other countries, are signing on to an agreement that will institute secret corporate courts just like this one tasked with undermining laws of countries if their profits are impeded. Oil titans like Chevron are the beating heart of the U.S. empire, and they work hand in hand to keep that blood pumping. In the most blatant expression, Chevron board of directors member Condoleezza Rice resigned to dutifully serve as George W. Bush's national security advisor, helping cement the corporation's relationship with the oil-friendly Bush regime. Chevron won big from the criminal war on Iraq, becoming one of the first companies to be awarded contracts following the 2003 invasion. The corporation even became part of a special project to restructure Iraq's conquered economy, helping form the new Iraq oil law, which handed Iraq's once nationalized oil to corporations like Chevron. Today, Chevron is a multi-million dollar sponsor to the Clinton Foundation. Its top tier donations got the corporation extra perks from Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, partnering to spread fracking to developing countries. And the U.S. war machine continues to do its part by ensuring the markets stay profitable. There continues to be far-reaching CIA operations to undermine the government of Ecuador and other leftist governments in Latin America. The American people pay over 24 million in tax dollars a year on these covert operations in Ecuador alone. 
This is the real context of Chevron versus the Amazon. It is the story being told around the globe of underdeveloped countries rising from the ashes of colonialism, neoliberalism, and subordination to empire, asserting their rights and national sovereignty. If Chevron is held accountable, it will send a message to the kings of this decaying social order that the people can unite, organize, and win. Only the defenders of the torrid past of corporate hegemony over human beings, enforced by war and terrorism, only they can deny that Chevron must pay what it owes to the people of the Amazon. But regardless of whether they pay or not, the truth about their terrible crimes have been exposed. A movement connected across the world, and a new tide against corporate impunity on the rise. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.